Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Nancy, my name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. And if not, well, then welcome back. The two of us have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Do you like how I started singing just now? <laughs> that I was don't beautiful. know why I did that. It might be the cold meds that I'm on. <laughs> Same. That sounded no. like a Folgers like jingle. <laughs> a nice cup of coffee. The best part of waking up is listening to Good Morning Nancy. Don't sue me. <laughs> Your coffee wow. sucks. I yes. hate Folgers um, so much. Oh god. Okay. Anyway, it's wow. Disgusting. Here we go. Already um, off the rails. Perfect. Go- We're just a couple a- of coffee elitists. Um. <laughs> Everyone, please, please pardon my sickly, sickly voice. My son has given me his terrible seasonal cold, so I'm going to do the best that I can. Um, But I sound like I'm about to go down to the corner store for a pack of Luckies and some scratch-offs. So so please bear with me. Also, my son is screaming in the background. Wow. Wow. My, okay. Basically, my entire family is downstairs, including my parents. So <laughs> this is a wreck. This one is going to be wild. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. But it's okay, because this is a wild-ass movie. So Yes. What are we talking about today, Abby? <laughs> today, we'll be discussing the 2017 indie Canadian horror film, Pie Wacket. It was written and directed by Adam McDonald, and it stars Lori Holden, Nicole Munoz, Chloe Rose, and James McGowan. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Specific trigger warnings for this episode can be found in the show notes. Okay, are you still here? Great. Then let's get this morning started. Abby, do you want me to read the plot summary since your voice is on the fritz? You know what? That actually might be best. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Teenager Leah and her mom have been at odds ever since Leah's father died unexpectedly. Both start grieving in polar opposite ways. Leah makes friends who are interested in the occult, like her, while her mother isolates herself and drinks. Finally, her mother makes the decision to move them to the country and into a remote cabin. Leah's mother hopes that this move will help them, but instead, it only makes the tension between them worse. After a terrible argument with her mother, Leah runs into the woods and performs a ritual to summon a demon, Piewacket to come up from hell to kill her mother. The ritual seemingly doesn't work and Leah returns home, but as the days pass and Leah and her mom start to bond again, 
Leah starts to see and hear strange things in the house and in the woods. Has Piwacket really come to kill her mom? Or is it all in her imagination? Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> wow! Oh my god. Uh, oh my god, what will happen? You have to watch the movie. Um, <laughs> I act like I haven't seen the film. Yeah, you're like, oh, oh no, my what's god. Gonna- Oh my god, what's going to happen? <laughs> How will it end? Oh dear. Oh. Okay. Well, um, let's get into the production of this film. So, writer-director Adam McDonald's directorial debut, Back Country, about a couple lost in the Canadian wilderness. Hang on. Oh my god, I knew it! You knew it? I knew it. I. You've seen this film? Oh my god, you haven't seen Backcountry? I have never seen it. Holy cannolis. It is a wild ride. Really? Oh my god. Yes. See, I've this I've only seen Piwacket. I haven't seen anything else that he's done. Okay, Backcountry, as someone who is I would consider myself a pretty avid outdoors person. Yeah, you um, are very much so. Yeah, as someone who like spends a lot of time out in the woods that movie terrified me it's wow. so scary i don't i don't want to like <clears throat> excuse me oh my god i don't want to give away too much um because i i think it's worth a watch for you for sure but it's um it's real horror it's not like supernatural horror so um well i mean i i'm gonna explain here um it's about a couple lost in the canadian wilderness while being chased by a man-eating bear <laughs> is, is that pretty much right yeah 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 <laughs> oh my god that movie like scarred me i'm not gonna lie it's, oh my it, god yeah yeah Wow. See, I've never seen it. It does sound scary. Um, but you know, it was actually, it was a huge hit when it premiered at the Toronto Film Festival in 2014. And in an interview with Rue Morgue magazine, McDonald said, quote, I was looking for another project after Backcountry. And just to pass the time, I read William Friedkin's biography, RIP. Um, and I forgot that he had done The Guardian, so I saw the film again and I heard the word piwacket and I remember how powerful that was when I first saw it. I went piwacket, that's my next movie. Unquote. Ooh. Yeah, so for context, uh in case any of our listeners have never seen The Guardian, there's a stuffed animal in the film. It's an owl and the owl's name is piwacket. But the Guardian is not where the name Piwacket originally comes from. And we'll talk about that later on in this episode. But when asked if the Piwacket uh, ritual in the film is real, McDonald uh, confirms that no, it's not real. Although it seems like it is because it's a combination of some real rituals, including a love ritual, which involves the blood and the milk and the herbs. And drawing down the broom ritual, which I have never heard of that. So I looked it up. I I went on to Google and literally the only thing that came up was this interview with Rue Morgue. So if any of our listeners know what drawing down the broom means, please enlighten us. Like, I thought, is it like jumping the broom, like in a wedding? But like... 
I do you know? I know there is there's a book um about paganism that ex it was actually like my introduction to reading like pagan books and it's called Drawing Down the Moon. Oh. And so I wonder if it's maybe along the same lines. It's just um basically about you know rituals and um kind of like a primer for paganism hmm. and kind of like delves into the history and like how to do rituals and stuff like that so i wonder it's gotta be did he uh, maybe mean to say drawing down the moon when oh, he maybe. said but maybe said drawing down the broom when he was doing the interview maybe that would make sense Okay, because I was like drawing down the broom and I was trying to look it up, but I couldn't find anything because <laughs> I thought this is new to me, but I've never. Yeah, I don't know. Um, he huh. also said to Rumorg that um, I quote, I hope people get this because in the left hand path from the research I did, if you want to open the doorway for a demon, you carve a triangle in the floor and that's the doorway and you close it with a circle around you. And that's what she does in the movie. And if people are like, why the triangle? What is she, what is she doing? That's why, unquote. Oh, so okay. left-hand path, that's Aleister Crowley, isn't it? Um, yes and no. Sure. I mean, I think... I, I feel like left-hand path and right-hand path, that's been around for a long time. Maybe he just took credit for it, but um, left-hand path is like dark magic. Right-hand is like very, it's like light work and a little bit more flowery, I would say, than left-hand. Mm, gotcha. So, okay, well, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Um. So a slight trigger warning for a mention of self-harm here. But when talking about the effects in the same interview, McDonald says effects artist David Scott and his team were great and, quote, I really wanted to not cut away when she cuts herself during the ritual. David and his team worked their magic and made it happen. I personally believe it's more effective when it's subtle. Maybe for some it feels more realistic and not over the top. You nearly always see a bone... You nearly always see a bone sticking out of a leg when someone breaks it. It fe I feel it's much more effective when the skin is stretched in an unnatural way from the bone break, but the bone itself hasn't been broken and the broken hasn't broken the surface of the skin. Unquote. Well, sorry mm -hmm. about that. Um, and I mean, for an indie film, the effects in this movie are pretty incredible. Yeah, the subtlety in this film is kind of what helped scare the shit out of me when I was watching it, actually. Yeah. Like, even the sound design, like when Leah's mom, quote-unquote mom, <laughs> bangs on her door and she's telling her to open up the door and let her in and her voice starts to, like, slowly change to pie wackets. Yeah. Oh, lordy. Like, even my husband was like, uh, yeah, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I, it's pretty intense. Um, McDonald also made it known how important the score was. So it's interesting you mentioned like sound and score. He said, quote, I feel music along with sound design to be one of, if not the most important ingredient to a horror film success. Music can really get under your skin. Just think of The Shining. My God. Evil Dead. Just brilliant. I worked with Lee Malia 
mm-hmm. from the band Bring Me the Horizon on this film. Mm-hmm. It was his first film, and I thought he did an incredible job. Very talented. I feel personally a lot of recent horror films have just too much music, wall to wall. We forget how powerful silence can be. So when the music does come in, you feel it all the more, unquote. Yes, hi, hello, Elder Emo, just popping in to say that Bring Me the Horizons album, Sempaternal, is a treasure to humanity. And also, the music in this film fucking slaps. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, isn't that what's tattooed on your chest? Yes. Yeah, I have oh. the, the title of the album right uh, under my collarbone, actually. Oh, um, my goodness. That's what I yeah. was like. Wait a minute. I was like, that word is familiar to me. <laughs> yes. I think I've seen it tattooed on Abby's chest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everybody thinks it says Semper Fi. And I'm like, oh. no, no. Not not the same. <laughs> well, not the same thing. It doesn't even look like that. Just read it. <laughs> Just read. No, I know. <laughs> but that is so funny because in Backcountry, he uses one of Bring Me the Horizon's um, songs. It's just like an instrumental song. But Ooh. that's so funny. Oh, my gosh. That's wild. Well, um, when asked if he feels nervous after releasing a film for the world to see, McDonald responded, I'm always a little nervous. You work so hard and put your heart and soul into a film and you hope it resonates with people. So many talented people worked on it and you want it to connect. I truly respect the audience and want them to come away with something. I want to give them how I felt when I first saw The Ring. That's the dream unquote um Mm. i love that he mentioned the ring because um (laughs) that was the first movie i ever saw that made me sleep with the light on yeah um yeah that film's haunted me for years and i just recently watched it again i think the last time i watched it was when we did it for the show like six years ago or whatever at this point um it's it's still very uh, it's still very troubling (laughs) Yes. So I love that that was like something that he really that resonated with him with this film, because this film has that similar feel, that eeriness, that creepy, creepy, crawly feel that the ring gives you. Um, This film has that as well, I think. For sure. So according to McDonald's Wikipedia page, in September of 2017, Piwacket screened in the Contemporary World Cinema section at the 2017 Toronto International Film Festival. It received mixed reviews from critics. In December 2017, the film had a theatrical run in Canada, and then it was released on VOD and DVD in the spring of 2018. And according to our girl, spooky astronauts Emma Wolf, quote, Piwacket actually takes itself very seriously, and I felt the terror between the characters and the teens, unquote. Mm-hmm. And according to Sarah Michelle Fetters, quote, the director's out for blood, and while this is a slow burn affair that craftily bides its time until just the proper moment to unleash a flurry of dexterously ominous thrills, the craven wickedness of it all is portentously intoxicating, unquote. Wow. I know. What a review. That is beautiful writing. (laughs) Madam. Madam. (laughs) Madam. (laughs) 
All right, now let's get into our discussion. Uh, let's start with the original Pie Wacket. So like mentioned earlier, writer-director Adam McDonald got the idea to name his film Pie Wacket after watching William Friedkin's film The Guardian, in which there is a stuffed owl named Pie Wacket. But that is not the origin of the name. <laughs> According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to this familiar spirit, quote, Piewacket was one of the supposed familiar spirits of an alleged witch accused by the claimed witchfinder general Matthew Hopkins in March of 1644 in the town of Manningtree, Essex, England. I hate this man! <laughs> I think that Witchfinder General, the film, is Vincent Price's... I think it is the scariest role that he has ever played. He 100%. is brutal in that film. It is really yeah. upsetting. Um, yeah. Definitely, if you love Vincent Price and want to see his most brutal role, I think Witchfinder General is, is the one. Yes. Hopkins claimed he spied on the witches as they held their meeting close by his house and heard them mention the name of a local woman. She was arrested and deprived of sleep for four nights, at the end of which she confessed and called out the names of her familiars, describing the forms in which they should appear. They were Holt, who came in like a white kitling, Jar Jarmara, who came in like a fat spaniel without any <laughs> legs at all, Vinegar Tom, who was like a long-legged greyhound with a head like an ox, and Ooh. Sack and Sugar, who were like black rabbit, Nuas, who was like a polecat, and Alamanzer, Piewacket, Peck the Crown, and Grizzle Gritigut, described as imps. Now listen. Um, um. <laughs> yeah. I read this, and I was like, these are made up <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> these are all made up under pressure like hopkins is such a fucking liar dude what a weasley fucking little liar dude like <laughs> <laughs> do you know that meme never mind um yes okay look i can make up a name right now Ertzabertz. baba do baba de bob Tukama, I literally just came up with those just right now. And they sound like Jamara and Holt and Grittity Gook or whatever she said. Vinegar Tom. She was probably looking at like a pot of vinegar on her on And her thought kitchen of her shelf. Yeah. brother named Tom. Yeah, it's Vine just like... Vinegar Tom. Vinegar Tom. <laughs> uh, Whiskey Abbey. There you go. See, it's just like... Wow, that you works. Just, that works. Hmm, yeah. that tracks. It's it's easy to come up with gobbledygook when you need to. Yeah. Like many yeah. witchfinder scholars have even tried to find like where Hopkins might have even gotten these made up names. Like he yeah. they're like they know that it's like this is BS. So like one scholar, Richard Coates, says, quote, Piewacket is a name bestowed with modest frequency on pet cats. This trend can be traced to a cat featured in the 1958 film Bell, Book, and Candle. The name itself has never been satisfactorily explained. 
but it has been correctly traced to the name of an imp or familiar spirit, quote-unquote, confessed in the presence of Matthew Hopkins, self-proclaimed witchfinder general. Self-proclaimed. I, I love it. <laughs> the first interrogated of the unfortunate witches, Elizabeth Bessie Clark, confessed the names of five of her familiars and implicated other women, naming their familiars, too. One of these was Piewacket, at least according to Hopkins. Uh, so Witchfinder General Hopkins wrote, immediately after this, witch confessed several other witches from whom she had her imps and named to divers women where, where their marks were and the number of their marks and imps and imp names which no mortal could invent. Wow. What a piece of shit. Yes, no mortal could invent these names. You little liar so um Coates says he says quote whatever the witch said and her words may have been a pure invention of the witch finder and yeah. whether or not hopkins truly heard the conversation the name we have on the printed page was filtered through the content of hopkins brain unquote uh, it makes me crazy but maybe <laughs> Maybe it's just like a weird coincidence, too, that we're talking about this now, or maybe it's just because it's spooky season, but I have been listening to and reading a lot about um, the witch hunts in Europe and America. Um, I've always been fascinated by them, but this really lays another layer of groundwork for how women will be treated in society for centuries to come. Right. Like, all we have to go on as far as history is the writing of old white men like Witchfinder General over here who mm -hmm. hated women. So, like, there's a part of me deep down that hopes there is a hell for these guys like, uh, like this turd Ferguson. And, <laughs> like, I hope they get their eyeballs plucked out every day by the women they killed. <laughs> <laughs> please continue <laughs> yeah and i think that's why the movie witchfinder general is so scary because it's like this is a guy who had it out for women he yeah. he was uh he hated women he hated yeah. women he hated powerful women and he wanted them dead and it's frightening now, okay, with all this in mind, scholars and historians started looking into Matthew Hopkins' past and would read his journals and letters and his family's journals and letters, and they looked into, like, any acquaintances he had. And wouldn't you know it, according to Coates, quote, it has eluded explanation so far. It is suggested that it derives from the name of a village. He's talking about the word Piwacket. Mm -hmm. Um is suggested that it derives from the name of a village presently in the state of Maine. And Ooh. it became known in England through family connections between Hopkins and the governor of Massachusetts, John Winthrop, unquote. So, yeah, like... <laughs> wow. So Coates says, um, this town was founded at the site of a substantial Indian village on the Saco River. And... The town was known as Pegwagget. Pretty closely oh. resembles Piewacket, right? <laughs> <laughs> no mortal, though. No mortal. No mortal. <laughs> now, you might be thinking, meh, that's a coincidence. Sure. However, 
This small town has many different spellings in various letters and journals from people mentioning it. Other ways it's been pronounced or spelled. So Pegwagget was that that one. Mm-hmm. It's also been called Pigwacket and Pequacket. <laughs> reminds me of like sorry the, the videos of like when food labels are misspelled spaghetti <laughs> and exactly balls. like that <laughs> you're like yeah i get what you're trying to say <laughs> yeah so listen correspondence between hopkins uh hopkins father and winthrop exists and like This town is mentioned. So for Hopkins to have never heard a word similar to Piwacket before is absolutely ridiculous because there's proof that he's heard of this town. And according to Coates, if no mortal could invent the name Piwacket, we must conclude that it surfaced unbidden at an overheated moment from the pit of Hopkins' recent memory and attached (laughs) itself to whatever he... Whatever it was, he was or claimed to be watching. But it seems in every way to have been Hopkins' own demon, unquote. Well, like, also, the translation could have been in part to the weird-ass way that they used to spell back in the day. Like, for example, how Robert Eggers, like, presents the witch. How it actually looks like the the witch because yeah. it's two v's instead of a w so like right. not only this but like of course they would fear a word that they didn't understand or that sounds like it's from a different language or something like that or like if this word was attached to a certain trauma that he maybe experienced like I don't know if he's ever been to the state of Maine, but he, his family knew the governor of Massachusetts and through talking to him and other family who were in the United States, they mentioned this town, but there's all, but like you said, like there's so many different ways people spell things that it's like, and sometimes it's because they don't actually know how to spell it but they know how it sounds yes so they just write down what they think it's how it's they think it's spelled because this is how it sounds right so that's why there's so many different spellings of certain things um well because it's not an english it's not an english word it's a native american word right right and of course like (laughs) nobody back then is gonna take the time to learn native american language so no (laughs) absolutely not never mind the fact that he could have been like tripping balls on ergot and maybe like pulling it out of those memory banks so he's like sure or he just who knows what he thought like who knows if he really believed in everything that he wrote or whatever but um yeah, he 100% made up this word. Um, so anyway, sorry to like, <laughs> make anyone feel bad, but Piwak, it's not real. Um, it's just a, <laughs> it's just a town in Maine. <laughs> Pigwicket. Um, Pigwicket. Pigwagget. Um, so let's talk about our next topic. Um, let's talk about the forest, folk horror, and black metal in Piwacket. So according to Adam McDonald, quote, I have a hard time imagining a witch horror movie without the backdrop 
backdrop of a forest, I think it may be because the fairy tales that have been passed down for generations always took place in and around the woods, reflecting the time when these tales were written and spoken. There is something so dramatic about the woods. They can be beautiful and alluring, but also terribly frightening. The unknown is around every corner and you are literally surrounded by life and death. Plus, I spent a lot of time in the North, surrounded by nature. I find so much inspiration from it, unquote. Yeah, the entire time I watched this, I was like, ooh, this reminds me of Gracie's old house. <laughs> yes, it really does look like it. Listen, I used to have a friend who was so scared to drive me home at night because the woods, like, creeped him out. <laughs> And yeah, I was like, yeah. what? I was like, this is my home. Like, it was never something that ever scared me. And like, <laughs> I really, I was never scared of the woods growing up. And I think I told you this once, and I may have mentioned it on the show, but I I can't remember. Um, but when I was a, a, a kid, my pediatrician asked me what I like to do for fun. And I said, I like to run through the woods. <laughs> oh. And she was like, oh, okay, great. That's so cool. You're a cool kid. I guess, but I think they were like, like to run through the woods. Where do you live? (laughs) Are you a wild child? (laughs) She like writes down like feral child in her notes. She's like, "Uh yeah. But yeah, uh, so the woods are absolutely magical. And according to Justine Gaunt, quote, In the book Women Who Run With Wolves, Clarissa Pincola Estes analyzes the messages conveyed to us by the ancients in tales such as Beauty and the Beast. For Beauty, it is her father who bumbles into a lethal deal because he knows nothing of the dark side of the world or the unconscious. The horrible moment marks a dramatic beginning for her, a forthcoming consciousness and shrewdness. This dark side of the world is symbolized by the beast, of course, her father's lack of clarity, and his clouded vision and inability to navigate the true path by losing himself in the woods. As for Little Red Riding Hood, straying from the path and into the woods is similarly dangerous and filled with treachery. Symbolically, those who lose their way in the uncharted forest are losing their way in life, losing touch with their consciousness with their conscious selves and voyaging into the realms of the subconscious, unquote. Mm. Yeah, so the forest is also a place for worship in some cultures. Uh, Gaunt says, in many cultures, the forest is dedicated to God or ancestor worship, a place where offerings are made and initiation rituals to test the psychic realm undertaken. In an illustrated Encyclopedia of Traditional Symbols, J.C. Cooper writes, Entering the dark forest or the enchanted forest is a threshold symbol. The soul entering the perils of the unknown, the realm of death, the secrets of nature, or the spiritual world which man must penetrate to find the meaning." So this happens to Leah in the film. She enters the woods to find meaning, to worship, and to perform a ritual to break the barrier between the spirit realm and the earthly realm that she resides in, but instead she gets lost in her own grief and rage. And much like when you use a Ouija board, like she forgets to say goodbye after the ritual is done. Yeah. 
And um, Adam McDonald has also said, quote, black metal was a big inspiration for the film. And anyone who knows about black metal knows how synonymous an eerie forest is to it, unquote. McDonald goes on to say, quote, the folklore is so rich in its history, there is so much to draw from. And with folklore, you always feel there might be a tinge of truth to it, which of course makes it even more scary. Also, maybe it reminds us of our childhood, something we always seem to be exploring. What's also interesting is for most of us that scared for most of us, what scared you when you were just a kid can still be just as terrifying today, unquote. Mm. So, Abby, uh, I would love for you to talk a little bit about black metal and the forest and all that. Uh, hell yeah. Let me just crack my knuckles and dive into this subject because y'all know your girl loves metal. So <laughs> when you watch this film... Um, you can see from some very obvious um, things like in Leah's life that she is influenced a lot by like Norwegian black metal. Um, you can see like the patches on her bag. They they're like metal artists and corpse paint and stuff like that. And she listens to a lot of music in the background that you know, is from that sort of European black metal scene. So there's a song that plays in one scene when she's chilling in her room. I think she's like flipping through her occult books and stuff like that. But it's by an artist called uh, Karak Angren, I believe is how you pronounce it. They're a Dutch metal band. And some of the lyrics are pretty relevant to the film. Like, I'm not sure if you caught it when you were watching it, but um, mm. part of the song goes, uh, and the girl had a disturbing dream, a stifling feeling of a hand covering her mouth, a smell of alcohol all around. She doesn't understand and cannot defend herself. When will this suffocating and dream end? So, um, pretty relevant, yeah. yeah, to what is going on in Leah's life. Like, she's really grappling with all these feelings that go along with having a parent who is, you know, whether it's alcohol addicted or addicted to other substances. Like, she is, she's really going through it. So, I'm sure she finds a lot of solace in this music or at mm -hmm. least, you know, somebody who understands and can speak to her about it because, you know, from, and this is just kind of going off on a tangent a little bit, but from what we gather from Leah's friends, like they're pretty forgiving of their parents. Um, like I know one of her friends in one scene is talking about how, you know, our parents are just people and, you know, they make mistakes and that kind of thing. And meanwhile, Leah is like, yeah, you have no idea. <laughs> well, I no idea. How, I know you might bring this up later, but I love how one of her friends was like, you wanted to kill your mom? Yeah. Like, you're psycho. <laughs> like, yes. So I think they are way more forgiving to their parents than she is. And I think she kind of is like taken aback by that, you know, that her friends don't agree with how she handles her grief and rage and stuff. And she thinks, well, that's what this is all about. But I wonder if she sort of misinterprets it. Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny because, like, those lyrics are what she connects with. And mm -hmm. I feel like she 
identifies more with like black metal and that and the whole like occult scene because mm-hmm. she is literally living it. Her friends, while you know they're interested in it and they may like to identify and associate with that scene, like they are not really living it as sure. much as Leah is. So That's true, yeah. Yeah, so Norwegian black metal is shrouded by a lot of controversy and darkness itself. Um, Between the burning of historically significant landmarks like churches. And um, yeah, they went through and just burned a bunch of beautiful old churches in Norway. And, um, you know, there there was a murder case with with one of the more popular... Uh, Norwegian black metal bands and you know there's always the the rumors of satanic rituals a lot of these band members were just nerds <laughs> but the bad ones were real bad like Ooh. like not good um yeah so I found a really great article on metalhead community by Barack Gondogo and They write that in the early 1990s, Norway became the epicenter of a series of church burnings that sent shockwaves through the black metal community and the world at large. These acts of arson carried out by members of the Norwegian black metal scene were seen as a radical and extreme expression of rebellion against societal norms and organized religion. The churches, considered symbols of Christianity and authority, became targets of destruction as a means to manifest the nihilistic and anti-establishment ideology that black metal embraced. It was claimed that notorious figures such as Varg Vikernes, Euronymous, and other members of Mayhem were involved in these acts, perpetuating a wave of darkness and controversy that would forever be associated with the black metal movement. The church burnings garnered international media attention, painting black metal as a genre intertwined with violence and extremism, which I find so, so interesting because of the imagery at the end of the film of the burning house and how uh-huh. how similar that looks to um, a lot of the photos that were taken when they were going around burning these churches down. Mm-hmm. And actually, one of the bands used an image of a burned church for an album cover. So the article goes on to say that black metal's allure lies in its ability to transport listeners to a world of cold winters and dark forests where emotions are heightened and the atmosphere is thick with intensity. It continues to captivate audiences, invoking a range of feelings from anger and sorrow to transcendence and empowerment. The genre's enduring spirit thrives not only in its musical output, but in its loyal community, which remains passionate and open-minded. Within the embrace of darkness, black metal creates an immersive experience, an escape into a realm where the shadows reveal their secrets. In conclusion, black metal history is a tale of darkness, rebellion, and musical evolution. From its humble beginnings to its present-day incarnations, black metal has left an indelible mark on the world of heavy metal. It is a genre that thrives on its ability to provoke, challenge, and captivate its listeners. So, in drawing a lot of inspiration from the worlds of Scandinavian and Viking folklore, I think it's easy to be transported to a time and place where rituals were an important part of life and culture when you're listening to this music. So, 
it continues to draw people into that sort of darkness, I think. Um, and this storytelling is a way to open a door and influence people when it comes to learning about occult practices as well. So even if a lot of it is like hokey or just for show or like artistic expression, uh, this can be definitely positive and negative. Like as an artistic outlet, I think it's wonderful. I think it's a way to kind of embrace that dark side and then like I said in an expressive way that kind of gets to the core of death and darkness and grief and those kinds of things but I really do think it can be a slippery slope when you're in a dark place to begin with because it can also pull you down deeper and I know this because I've been there and Although I'd like to think that I'm very in tune with my shadow self, there was definitely a time when I was inundating myself with a lot of dark shit and it, it did wear me down. Like I can see this a lot in Leah too. And I definitely found that relatable and an early, in like in early parts of the film, it seems like it's one of those like, oh, it's just a phase mom. Like, <laughs> It's that kind of moment in her life. And sh she does find a lot of joy in it. But the longer you watch Leah, the more you're like, oh, honey, like, pull back a little bit, please. Like, music, just like a ritual, can be very dangerous when you're on the edge already. So kind of in that same vein, the forest is something that is so, so, so beautiful and life-giving, but it also takes life. Like, if you get lost in the woods, fucking forget it. Like, <laughs> if you don't know your way around, you're, you're kind of, uh, you're stuck there. So you can, you can easily succumb to the elements and the woods can swallow you right up. So it, it can also be, I think, used as a metaphor for the human mind too. There's like, even visually, it looks the same. Like there's a lot of fractals and like twisting, winding branches and they look like dendrites in your brain, um, which like kind of connect your neurons and stuff like that. Mm. But it's That's kind of like how the, the title um, of this film, the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the text. Like the typography? Yeah. Yeah, the typography. It looks like the cover of like um a metal band album 100 um, percent, yeah yeah but it and also kind of like... also looks like the neurons in your brain like you said yes and also branches of a tree like a really gnarly twisted tree right it's wow. i know it's it's kind of cool so hmm. i mean all of that being said, like, it's really easy to get lost in your own mind if yeah. you're not careful, especially mm -hmm. if you're suffering from, you know, grief or, or depression or really any mental illness. So in this story or in this film, the real issue kind of begins and ends in the woods. Mm -hmm. Like, she flees, Leah flees to the woods after she has a fight with her mom and you get this really great visual of, like, in, in the middle of this 
forest sits a house and it's a very unnatural structure to the surrounding like um trees and stuff like that so Mm -hmm. it's like of course it has to be destroyed like it doesn't belong there you know Mm. so when something goes awry in our mind or with our mental health we try to get rid of it right like piwacket is it feels like she's kind of mental illness and grief run amok in the mind of both Leah and her mom, but also the surrounding woods. Mm. So Piwacket is also born in the woods. Mm. Um, during the Salem witch trials, there was so much superstition about the forest and, you know, whether you're out there licking the devil's butthole or, you know, like, <laughs> da- <laughs> Dancing Gross. naked with other witches or, like, meeting up with demons. The woods were not a place that women should have been alone. Mm. So uh, while this was kind of told to children to keep them safe, I think it carried over to teens and young adults in order to keep them from mischief, like premarital sex. Oh, so, boy. <laughs> so the woods were, like, scary as hell. And even scarier as they are used to summon demons. Um, So, yeah, like, I think for this film, combining that sort of concept of, like, the deep, dark woods and this girl who loves, like, black metal and all the occult stuff that goes with it, it added so much to the layers of the film and, like, what it actually means to to summon a demon <laughs> and, like, have it be real, you know? Yeah, I think that she just, fe- like, I think you text me this after you watched the film, but she feels like a real teenager. Yes, yeah. She doesn't feel like this kid pretending to go through a phase you know like she doesn't feel like an actor pretending to be a kid pretending to go through a phase she feels like a real teenager who is really grieving who is really angry and who is really into this crazy shit yeah and it's great it is great it's believable it also like lends so much to how we view and we'll get into this later in the script but i just want to like quickly say this sort of mythology around the woods lends to how we feel about teenagers and that stage of life and how i don't know how many times i have heard as a parent say like people say like oh enjoy it now because when they're teenagers you're gonna wish for these days back and i'm like are we that separated from like ourselves and our stages of life that we actually fear teenagers like that is well so let's get into that yes yes let's so um the next topic is i was a teenage witch adolescence and the occult so according to the essay (laughs) witchcraft and the cultural construction of female adolescence or a short history of teenage witches which can be found on horror homeroom's website quote neither adult nor child straining for independence yet perpetually fettered by the prohibitions of parental authority teenagers exist in an ambiguous in-between state 
Adolescence is demarcated by a continuous struggle wherein attempts to mold an independent, authentic adult selfhood are invariably hampered as one is repeatedly drawn back to the dependent state of the child through the omnipresence of familial demands and constraints. At the same time, there is something frightening and unsettling about adolescence. After all, adolescence is perhaps the time when one feels most acutely and most intimately the horror of abjection." Unquote. Mm. So abjection, we talked about abject horror in our episode on possession uh, just a few months ago. And in case you forgot what it meant, it's basically pushing the boundaries of what is and isn't acceptable. It's showing what's inside on the outside, quite literally. It's otherness, to say the least. It's blood from menstruation and it's breast milk. And yeah, objection can be terrifying to teens. Mm-hmm. Um, according to Horror Homeroom, quote, one's body becomes a stranger, a distant reflection of a self that does not seem at home in its new metamorphic physical form, unquote. And although Ray Bradbury's short story, The April Witch, about a teen girl who has like ghouls for parents um, and <laughs> some other stuff that happens, um, that was published a year earlier. Uh, but the uh, as the essay from Horror Homeroom points out, the pinnacle point where witchcraft and teen girls met was in 1953. So the April Witch came out in 1952, but in 1953, quote, Arthur Miller's powerful condemnation of McCarthy-era paranoia, The Crucible, traced the origins of the infamous Salem witch trials to adolescent spite and sexual jealousy. While, as historian Emerson W. Baker has observed, Salem's principal accusers spanned a range of demographics and included both old and young. Miller's fictive rendering of the trials locates the source of the town's paranoia in the vengeful denunciations of the the teenage Abigail Williams. That Abigail is transformed into a hormonal adolescent by Miller's pen is significant. In reality, the historical Abigail Williams was a child when the trials occurred. Yet, despite the play's 17th century setting, Abigail behaves like a stereotypical 20th century American teen. She throws tantrums and lusts after unattainable crushes. She explicitly bullies and manipulates the coterie of young girls that encircles her, utilizing her power and influence to intimidate others. Although The Crucible deals with two parallel historical tragedies, the play suggests that rather than emerging from social prejudices and perennial anxieties about difference, the witch-hunting mentality derives from petty teenage vindictiveness." So the biggest influence after The Crucible would have been probably the appearance of Sabrina Spellman in the Archie comics in 1962, so about a decade later. And she was less diabolical and more friendly. The eventual classic TV show Bewitched, which would premiere in 1964 and run until 1972, would be a big point as well because that showed um, teen witches that they could eventually grow into adult women witches who could Hmm. be domesticated, but that's a whole other episode. (laughs) Well, fun fact, there is a song by another metal band called Motionless and White about this very subject, and it's called Mm. Abigail. And if you think that song doesn't get me hyped, buddy, you are wrong. It's so good. (laughs) 
So, you know, just elder elder emo popping in to say <laughs> hi again. <laughs> so according to Sarah Hughes for their article Spellbound, why witchcraft is enchanting a new generation of teenage girls, quote, so why witches and why now? The idea of being able to manipulate supernatural forces still resonates, says Owen Davies, a professor of social history at the University of Hertfordshire and the author of America Bewitched, the story of witchcraft after Salem. Quote, witches and ghosts speak to something fundamental and innate in our psyche. It's an emotional connection. The article goes on to say, quote, the last time witches were so in fashion was in the 1990s. The response from young girls was intense. When Buffy and Charmed were at their peak, I would get letters from teenage girls, mainly from America, asking for help about where to look for spells, says Davies. Those shows gave teenage girls a feeling of empowerment. There's something very appealing about magic and witchcraft. There have also been studies of girls who were interested in witch shows. Whoa, 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 whoa. There have also been studies of girls who were interested in witch shows in the 1990s following how many went on to become practicing Wiccans. It's not a huge number, but it's interesting that some of them watched those shows and thought, I want to know more, unquote. Hughes's article continues, quote, often the traditional way of looking at relationships in young adult fiction is that the guy has all the power and the interesting life and the girl goes on along for the ride but that's not the whole story says author ruth warburton increasingly we're trying to bring our daughters up to believe they can be the leader they can have the adventure they can do the cool stuff and one thing about witches is that they allow you to explore that moment when girls become teenagers and realize the power they have as women and how exhilarating that can be unquote so teen girls in witchcraft have been connected for quite some time yeah. and our society and our media has really been on that like they know that this is something that teen girls are very interested in and it's <laughs> and they've known that for a while um and we might have mentioned this in our episode on Carrie which was oh my god over 3 years ago at this point um <laughs> so I can't remember but I think she is also a great example of a teen girl coming into her powers of witchcraft and but um she doesn't have the guidance of a parental figure to help her with that transition so she yeah. just like blows her school up instead you know so <laughs> it's like um and so that's another thing it's like we know how powerful girls can be but it, there's also that fear of the uh that frightening aspect of like being out of control with that power yeah that is true. And also, I just thought, like, biologically, I feel like when you're a teen, it's almost like, it's not like it's the strongest you will ever be. I don't know. Like, when I remember when I was a teen, I feel like my pain tolerance was so high and I could just go and go and go. Like, I, I never got tired. Like, <laughs> and I think... Adults are, they feel kind of um, overpowered in a lot of ways by teens. Mm. So mm -hmm. I'm sure that that just like adds to the fear. But I would like to add here that 
this kind of idea is coming right off the coattails of uh like the satanic panic all of this like uh witchcraft in the 90s and that kind of thing also happening around the same time as televangelism so mm-hmm. um i don't have like exact numbers so this is just like completely anecdotal that i'm saying right now but i feel like in history whenever we see oppression being like done by religious or uh patriarchal codes we also see this polarity in the way that people react um particularly young women so mm-hmm. i'm not surprised that there was an uptick in the numbers of like practicing wiccans or you know pagans because as someone who has a background in being oppressed by like christianity witchcraft was appealing to me because right. to me i didn't have to concede my own power over to a god that would like just as soon smite me for some benign reason like now i feel powerful and sort of in control of my body and my actions when i practice magic so there is definitely a sense of autonomy that goes along with uh you know being a practicing witch so i think that has a lot to do with it too like there's not much that you have control over when you're a teen like at all because you're stuck in that weird phase that you know we kind of mentioned earlier where you still need to be taken care of but you're also learning to assert your independence so it's definitely it's an interesting dichotomy when you look at it that way too yeah and you know maybe it's because i'm a mom now or maybe it's because i'm officially in my mid-30s but teenagers do scare the shit out of me like honestly <laughs> they honestly they've scared me since college and i'm not gonna lie like i used to get catcalled by 14 year old boys on my way to class Ugh. in college Ugh. and on halloween all of us college kids would either party at the local bar near the college or literally hide in our dorm rooms because halloween was really scary because the high school teens were the worst like they would like egg houses they would like yeah it was awful and like we were all legit afraid of them now how we feel about teens is kind of normal although maybe not entirely justified like you said um according to gabby dunn there is never a worse time in life than being a teenager or tween everything feels momentous your body is out of control your brain is a carousel of nightmares and your friends are (laughs) a-holes everything is the worst you're like a hardened inmate looking to get back at the people who put you away (laughs) you feel like you've got nothing to lose and i sympathize we've all been there and obviously not all of you are like this but Mm -hmm. man oh man i get it when i was a tween teen uh it was the suckiest and to the rest of us in society you're all freaking terrifying (laughs) dunn continues there's this dangerous game of escalation that goes on with teenagers it's animalistic in nature so base they're constantly one-upping each other and teenagers now grew up on the internet they've seen they've seen things man they've seen (laughs) vietnam level shit just sitting at home on their family computers teens are totally desensitized and subsequently are probably all tiny sociopaths unquote wow um but i think there's there's sort of a truth to that especially with this whole idea of clout and doing things on the internet to like get attention 
um i blame things like youtube and tiktok because there is this idea of like again the one-upping the doing something um better than anybody else i do think that because we live in the age of the internet there is sort there is a little bit of a difference when it comes to things because we i don't know where i think kids especially are exposed to things that maybe different generations weren't quite exposed to yet you know yeah yes i i agree with you yeah and according to patrick a coleman for their article it's time for americans to stop being scared of teenagers quote fear of young people has an official term ephibophobia the coinage comes courtesy of kirk astroth a professor of family and consumer sciences at the university of arizona who borrowed the root from the ancient greeks and ephib ephibe i think was a teenage boy who was isolated from his community at 17 to learn to hunt, fight, and survive on his own. It was in the late 1980s and early 1990s when American children suddenly became terrifying to American adults. There was a real movement from a lot of parts of our society to demonize young people and make them a part of the problems, Astroth tells Fatherly magazine. This was true, he's quick to add, at least in part because of a real spike in juvenile crime, which peaked in 1994. But the operative word here is peaked. Juvenile crime rates have plummeted over the last two decades. There's no longer much reason to fear teenagers. Americans seem to be doing so largely out of habit, unquote. Uh, and so to circle back to teens and witchcraft, Coleman notes, quote, American teens have always been dogged by awful representations of their overwhelming zeal for life. In 1693, Cotton Mather wrote of the Salem witch trials, the children of New England have secretly done many things that have been pleasing to the devil, unquote. So it all comes back to that, doesn't it? <laughs> Oh, oh, weird. These the witch trials uh, really setting the tone for our country for yeah. centuries to come. Yeah, you don't say. But no, I um, when you were talking about how uh, in I think the quote was in the 1980s and early 1990s, um, when children suddenly became terrifying to American adults. I don't think that that is any kind of coincidence i mean when you look at the columbine shooting as well that was perpetrated by teens i think the 24-hour news cycle also yeah. started then so yes. we got way more information about things that were happening all over the world rather than in our own little towns so right yeah right makes yeah it feel, makes it feel like kids are doing more harm when you're hearing about a kid in california doing something but nothing's happening in your small town in New York or whatever, you know? So, right. yeah. Well, there's also, a, and I mean, episode for another day, but I just want to point out that there are so many systemic issues there also, including right. racism that kind of contribute to those statistics. So sure. just keep that in mind when, you know, but like, I want to say too, not only all of this, great stuff that you just mentioned about like being afraid of teens but yeah. teens are also kind of in their defense they're like cornered animals because they are scared so when you corner an animal of course they're gonna react 
aggressively because they don't know what's going on. So, (laughs) but on top of that, our society, especially here in America, I'm not really sure what it's like over in Europe and, and that kind of thing, but we have completely normalized sexualizing teenagers And I think maybe that's part of what Cotton Mather meant when he said what he said about the children of New England. Like, we think that teens really only care about, like, sex, and they're driven by hormones. And yeah, sometimes that's true, but it's not like that's all they're worried about. Like, their lives are really, really just starting, and they want it all. So they're exploring everything that they can possibly get their hands on. But I think that becomes an easy answer for adults because they don't always see teens as autonomous people. And I feel like we're almost in a way more trusting of toddlers because they're so innocent and they don't know a whole lot. But teenagers have that kind of forbidden hunger for knowledge and you know according to the bible that knowledge led to our downfall so of course we carry that idea through the centuries up until now in like modern day america and so a lot of that fear of kids of teenagers is it's very rooted in the way that our society has operated for centuries So it's kind of, uh, it's a little bit of a catch-22 because we're taught to fear them, but at the same time, they contribute so much to our lives and our society. So it's just, it's a conundrum. Yes, for sure. (laughs) Let's talk about our our next topic, mothers, daughters, horror, grief, and rage in Piwacket. Now- Abby, you and I are currently not the mothers of daughters. Not currently. <laughs> right. Right. We have penis havers. Um, th- those are our children. But yeah. uh, we are daughters uh, who have mothers. So we have some experience in that regard. But um, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I will say that, like, while I don't like to gender my kids too much just yet, like, and I think we're both on the same page as far as that stuff goes, like, there are distinct differences (laughs) in sons and daughters Mm. based on my experience growing up in a house with all girls to now raising all boys. The dynamic is so different. There are different like battles I guess I would say um but I think it's also interesting that in this film Leah is an only child because Mm. you really don't see that a lot like off the top of my head I can think of the ring um or like the sixth sense are there siblings involved in the sixth sense I don't remember No, he's an only child in that too Okay, yeah. I I think in a family unit that small, perhaps the grief kind of becomes exaggerated. I mean, there's only so much that you can do to help each other when you're a small unit. There's not a lot of time to 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 grieve on your own. You're constantly trying to help the other person who is grieving. And yes. so with that back and forth, back and forth, you kind of like are at odds with each other because you need space, you don't need space, you need help, you don't need help. And it's like trying to balance your own grief with someone else's is really difficult. 
Yes, 100%. And I don't think there is anything wrong with a small family unit. Like, that's totally not what I'm getting at here. What I do think is that there is, I don't know, hard to explain because maybe this is something that, like, you can talk more on because you are a smaller family unit. But I know, like, in our household, it's a little bit easier because we have um, the two kids and, like, we have us two adults. So if one of us is having a hard time communicating about something, it's sort of like, not that we are passing off responsibility, but you have more outside perspective and you have kind of more to bounce ideas off of in that, like, really small family nucleus. So, I don't know. It's seeing Leah go through her grief. I was like, man, that is something that I can't super relate to because I had two older sisters mm-hmm. and like my my sons have each other. And mm-hmm. so I think that it was really important that this film showed that because it's it can be so hard to navigate. And we in America are expecting people to have multiple kids and like you have big families because, you know, that's what a nuclear family is. But when a a small family goes through such a large amount of grief, it's like horrifying. It feels horrifying to me. I I do think about often um, because we plan on just staying a family of three Mm -hmm. and um I do think about often, like, what what would we do, you know? But here's the thing. Leah's mom doesn't seem to have any friends. Right. She doesn't have any source of of someone to lean on. Like, she isolates herself. She starts drinking. Like, she kind of, and I, I really hate to say it, but she kind of becomes a bad mom in that sense. Because yes. she's not only not taking care of her daughter, but she's not taking care of herself. And she needs to take care of herself before she can take care of her daughter. Yes. Um, so the fact that she, this this mother is so isolated, and motherhood can be isolating. The fact that she doesn't have somebody to lean on is huge. So one of the things that I really tried to do when I first moved to this new city was I really tried to find friends. I really tried to find people that I could lean on, that I could, that I could help and could help me if I ever needed anything, or even if I just needed somebody to go out with and hang out with here. And I do, I have a solid group of, I have three really good friends that I've made here and we see each other and text each other and ask each other for help and we help each other we do we just went to a, a a music we just saw a musical together so it's like we do things together and i know if i needed anything and if anything terrible happened i have friends in my vicinity to lean on and leah's mom doesn't seem to have that to the point where she wants to isolate herself even further and bring her daughter out to the middle of nowhere with her because she doesn't have anybody to lean on but Mm. leah does and the fact that she's taking her daughter away from her friends to me sounds irresponsible as a mom yes and to me i thought you know yeah everyone grieves differently for sure 
but the fact that this mother is <laughs> i'm judging her but it's like you know when you become a parent you have a responsibility and yes you do have your own feelings and your own grief and your own trauma that you're dealing with and you absolutely need to feel those things and deal with those things but your baby didn't ask to be brought into this world and you need to take responsibility for that <laughs> yes yes and so that means you need to take care of yourself and in taking care of yourself that will also take care of your child um, taking your kid into the middle of the woods in the middle of nowhere is maybe not the answer. Maybe it's therapy. <laughs> maybe it's AA, you know, it's like, right. maybe, maybe it's making friends. Maybe it's going to like a grief counselor. And she, I feel like she does something that really hurts herself even more and her daughter. She, I think she thinks that she's helping. Like we said at the beginning of the plot summary, I think she thinks that this is helping, but it, it literally makes it worse. It literally is the end of her. She dies because of it. Yes. Piwacket never would have gotten involved if mom had gone to therapy. <laughs> Basically, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, you like hit the nail on the head with that because as I was watching this, I was like, oh, okay, I guess fuck Leah and Leah's mental health. Like, she doesn't matter. She doesn't get a say. That fucking sucks. And I'm like, if you're gonna sell your house and you need a change of scenery, sure, sell your house, but move into an apartment that's, like, close to her school and maybe spend your weekends away from home, like, take some trips, let Leah stay with her friends. Like, it didn't have to be that hard. It really did not. And you're right, everybody grieves in their own way, but that doesn't mean that it's a healthy way to grieve. And that's kind Correct. of the key. Right. So, yeah, yeah. I um, I, I definitely sympathized with Leah and her feelings at that point because I was like... Honestly, I did too. Even though I kind of related to the mom more, I was also like, okay, but... <laughs> like, yeah. You need to pull yourself together, mom. Pull yourself together. But she doesn't have a tribe. She does. And this is why mothers finding friends is so important because we need an, es I hate to say it, but it's like you need that escape and you need that way, that, that, that family unit out of your own family unit because yeah. you might not be able to escape it. And um, then you're stuck with resentment, which is what happens. They resent yeah. each other. Obviously, their bond begins to grow later on, but it's like, <laughs> it's like when there's tension between the two of them, the mom has no one because her husband was her person. Yes. And listen, you, you absolutely should, your spouse should be your person. Of, of course, they're your, they're your spouse. But what if your spouse has, goes off and does something else? What if your spouse you know, hate to say that, but what if your spouse leaves you? What if your spouse dies? Then who do you have? You don't have anybody. Yeah. You know, it's so important for women to have someone to connect to, someone to talk to. And you know who else didn't have that? Going back to Carrie, Carrie's mom, Margaret White, yeah. did not have people. 
She did not have anybody. She was isolated and she did that to herself. And that's kind of what sounds like Leah's mom is doing. She's isolating herself. And it's like, it's so important to find your people. It's so important to get out as mothers because I think you become a better mother when you have people that you can be with that is not your family. And that's just my my opinion. But it's really important. So it is. I feel like if she had had that sort of support system or people that she could talk to outside of her own circle, she maybe wouldn't have said the terrible things that she did to Leah. 100%. The things that Leah has zero control over, like how similar she looks to her dad. Like, yeah, that was a big burn. Listen, and moms make mistakes and moms say terrible things. Like we, we are human beings, but um there there is a responsibility that you have you just do this is why some people don't become parents because that responsibility is too much and i get it no judgment there it's a lot of work to be a parent you have a lot of expectations that you have to live live up to you know yes and um yes our parents are just humans yes we are just humans like they say in the film but i do feel like um her mom had a responsibility. Her mom didn't had, you know, had to make a choice like, okay, like, how do I help myself? You know, and the, I think the mom needed to realize I don't have people. My person, the only person in my life who I ever hung out with or was close to is dead. Mm-hmm. And now I have nobody, you know, and it's like, what do I do? And it's like, you need to have a tribe. This is my advice to all mothers out there. You need to have a tribe. You need to have friends. You need to hang out with somebody other than your spouse because, and this is for men too, husbands. Husbands, I think, are, are, have a harder problem. Men, I think, have a harder problem finding their people than women do, I think, sometimes. It's very important to find people to be friends with. So it's good for your health. (laughs) It is. Also, biodiversity is important. It's good for the environment. If you are only, you know, talking to people that you spend 24-7 with, it's going to get mundane. It could lead to tension. It's just not good. No. Like, have some variety in your life. <laughs> it's true. This has been Therapy Corner with Gracie and Abby. But... <laughs> So we kind of to wrap up this topic, we had discussed similarities between this film and Hereditary. And it's interesting that they came out within the same time frame. Um, But the elements of fire really stuck out to me because that is kind of a perfect metaphor for grief. Like it engulfs you and it takes you out slowly and painfully and it leaves almost no evidence except ash. And, you know, I know that feeling very well, as I'm sure many of our listeners do. And I also know, you know, how hard it is to have a relationship with your mom if it was already strained, but then adding grief on top of that, like, oof. There were so many times that I could relate to Leah in that way. Mm-hmm. And um, just something else that I briefly want to mention while we're talking about like mothers and daughters, we've talked countless times on the podcast about the number three 
And in this film, we see that repeated over and over, like the three knocks, the three members oh, of this family, yeah. and three female characters. So I'm I'm gonna assume that Piwacket is female because of how she appears to Leah. Mm-hmm. She kind of looks like an old crone. So you have again like right. the mother maiden and crone aspect. Mm-hmm. And it also makes me wonder about the ultimate horror when it comes to family and procreation and the end of your lineage. This film is scary and it, like that concept is scary because if you don't carry on your family it's just kind of gone from the history mm-hmm. books. Like sure, there's no yeah. one there's no one left to carry on your story or keep your memory going. And I think so many people fear this because there's no coming back from it. Like in this situation, Leah essentially becomes an orphan and we don't know if she has any other family, but it's almost like Leah was born to wipe out her family. Mm. So like children are scary. (laughs) Being a parent is scary. Um, and I remember being so angry at my parents that I just wanted to be alone sometimes. And, you know, in your rage, you don't realize how fucked up that is. So Mm. I think Leah definitely goes through that with her mom and, you know, just having to grapple with the feelings of grief, but also wanting to be alone, but also not wanting to be alone. It's, uh, it's horrifying. Yeah. It's it's really scary. And listen, yeah, like, we got really heated there. I got really heated talking about her mom. But (laughs) the ending is extremely brutal because they are starting to connect. And they are are starting to, like, find each other again and to – and maybe the mom – will start like getting out there and start making friends and doing stuff and that rough patch was like a lot for her you know like yeah. there is something to that aspect as, as well but it's almost like sometimes it's like again this film gets compared to hereditary a lot but there is there there is sort of a point of no return there is yeah. sort of like you can't unsay something sometimes you mm-hmm. know once it's been said uh, you kind of have to believe that's how somebody really feels about it. And um, with the fact that she says that horrible thing to Leah, like, I can't look at you, is like, wow, you know, to hear that from your own mother, that's terrible. And then for her to be like, I wish you were dead, you know. And um, they I get the, the tagline for this is be careful what you wish for, I think. And it's yeah. that kind of thing. It's like, yeah. It's like sometimes you say things and you manifest it. Yep. And, uh that's what happens here. <laughs> yes. So final thought is Pi Wacket quote unquote real. Um, so according to Joe Lipset uh, of the podcast Horror Queers, who we love, um, one of the smartest things that writer director Adam McDonald does is keep the audience guessing about what is or isn't happening. Piwacket plays on this uncertainty, focusing on mood and tension rather than trot out a monster that the budget can't afford. Unquote. So, budget aside, do we think that Piwacket is really there? Um, I'm inclined to say no. I like the idea of Piwacket being a manifestation of Leah's own power and not a literal demon. Um, 
I think to me it's scarier and more sinister and makes the ending of the film more tragic and brutal because nothing was ever really there. Leah had nothing to fear but herself and her own rage and her own actions. But that's how I like to look at it. Um, I know a lot of people really like the idea of Piwak being there, though. Hmm. Well, I read this film as how scary it is to be young and not be believed in mm -hmm. a way. I think a lot of people like to emphasize how little teens know, but like, here's the thing. Teens are so attuned to what's going on around them because every emotion is heightened. Mm. So it's kind of like when you're a toddler going through like that neural pruning phase and you're gaining and losing information at a rapid pace sometimes. So it's, it's almost like you don't know what's real and what isn't. And the overlap mm -hmm. of these things is an insane stage of life. So um, kind of to uh, make a long story short, <laughs> um, I think... Piwacket is real. Mm. Um, I think demons are as real as we make them. So I think that many of us go through really hard things in life. And as humans, we make mistakes. And those energies that maybe exist out there for sure take advantage of our humanity in order to live in this plane of existence. And I think that's how these entities are fed. Like, at least in movies, but maybe in real life too. I think that this film ends up being a tragedy because Leah made such a huge mistake that it couldn't be undone. Mm. On the other hand, I think she is Piwacket. Mm. And I think that it needed her blood because it is a part of her. And it's yeah. the part that she doesn't want to face because it's ugly and horrible. And it's the part that wants to kill her mom. So mm -hmm. I think Piwacket is definitely like a physical manifestation of those things. Gotcha. And that's why I she's so frightening. Right. And I think that you and I are almost, that's so funny that we both have different conclusions of that. But I think we kind of believe the same thing. Leah mm -hmm. is Piwacket. Yeah. Like, cause I'm yeah. like, she only has to fear herself and, you know, and it's like, Piwacket is a you believe is a physical manifestation where I believe it's a maybe a mental manifestation. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, just want to point out that is one of the scariest demons I have ever seen on film. Yeah, that one's it's great. It scared <laughs> the ever loving shit out of me. <laughs> I was watching it with my husband and we were not expecting it to be that like like, the, the film was good, but we were like, eh, demon's probably kind of hokey, whatever. It wasn't. No, <laughs> it's very scary. Oh, my God. So good. Watch this movie, everybody. Yes, absolutely. Well, everyone, that's it for this month's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Thank you so much for listening. Shout out to Nadia Moraga for helping us out with this episode. She's amazing, and we are incredibly grateful for her and her research skills. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, and our Patreon is back. So if you have the means and appreciate our work, head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. And honestly, even just $2 a month is extremely helpful to us both. I mean, it can help pay for the cups of coffee that we need while we research, record, and edit the show. So mm -hmm. thank you so much. 
Yes. And as always, a free way to support the show is by following us on Instagram at goodmorningnancy. And truly, just reposting our content really helps others find our show, and we work really hard to make that content for you all. So um, feel free on any platform to share what we've got. So also, word of mouth. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Yes. Thank you all so much for listening. Stay safe out there. Happy Halloween. Spooky season. Yes. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.